Well, welcome, everybody. How's everyone been doing? I have to be louder? Okay. Well, let's start off with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, thank you so much for uh, letting us gather today, Lord, to be able to study your word. Uh, we just ask that you would be with us, give us wisdom and understanding and insights, and just bless our time together. In Christ, name I pray. Amen. Actually, I might turn that up a bit, the speaker, one more. Okay, a little bit louder. Eh, so far, so far, good. Okay. So, how's everyone been? Anything new and exciting? No? So, this week, if you guys remember where we were at in our series, so we're dealing with who is the real Jesus or the historical Jesus. Um, this talk this week is going to be a, a little bit, well, not a little bit, a lot of it specialized um, because. I don't know, have you guys come across that in any of your conversations, just some really off the wall stuff, like Da Vinci Code stuff? Has anyone brought that up to you yet? Mary, you have? Okay, awesome, good. So there's one other besides me, at least, that has dealt with this. So we're gonna be dealing with a couple of those things, about three of them. So first, we're gonna deal with the Da Vinci Code, and what is the Da Vinci Code, if you guys haven't read it or seen the movie? Um, it's the idea that Jesus was married, M-A-R-R-I-E-D, to Mary Magdalene, and they had a child together. Uh, the other one that we're doing is, was Jesus' divinity invented in the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D.? Or was it always held from the beginning of the church that Jesus was fully God? The third one we'll talk a little bit about is the Gnostic Gospels, and do they change our picture of Jesus? So we've, I have come across these quite a bit in my conversations with folks. I'll get asked these questions about, you know, the Gnostic Gospels or um, if Jesus actually had a child, how that would change him being the Savior. So these claims have often rocked people and we really don't know how to respond to them. So I feel it's worth dealing with uh, in this class because you might, in your evangelistic endeavors, as I have, really deal with these things. So let's deal with this first one. Was Jesus married to Mary Magdalene and did they have a child? So where does this idea come from? Because you're thinking, I mean, that's just, that's kind of far out there, isn't it? Um, well, okay, without giving you too much of a history lesson, so the whole point of the, um, the Da Vinci Code is this idea that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and they had a child. And the true, um, what do they call that? The cup of Christ thing. Um, the, Holy, the Holy Grail. So the true Holy Grail was actually this child which is in the blood lineage of Christ. Where did this start? Well, it, supposedly it started way back in the 1500s with a group called the Priory of Sion which led to the Knights Templar. And they were the ones that were uh, to be able to protect this, this super secret thing. And they were guarding you know, Mary Magdalene's child, which was the blood lineage of Christ, passed down, passed down, passed down. That's the whole Da Vinci Code. So first off, what's the historical evidence that Jesus was married 
and had a child? Well, it's a simple answer. None. Absolutely none. Definitely none in the scriptures. Definitely none outside of the scriptures. It's completely fabricated. David Brown was the guy's name that, that wrote um, the Da Vinci Code. No shred of evidence for that claim anywhere. Almost everyone says that Jesus was single in order to focus on ministry. However, the counterclaim to that is that it was un-Jewish to be unmarried. Anyone ever hear that objection yet? You haven't heard that yet, Bonnie? So the whole idea is that Jews, specifically rabbis, were supposed to have been married. That's the point of being a male Jewish teacher or, or leader figure. Jesus wasn't formally a rabbi, as we know, but certainly he was considered one. So why wasn't he married? It would have been assumed that he would have been married, yet there are several counter indications to this. So here's some scriptures. So let's turn to Matthew 19. And we're going to be in verses 10 through 12. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given. And then in verse 12, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So Christ sees it as some would be eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom, and he doesn't regard it absolutely necessary to be married in order to have ministry, right? It also seems that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 holds a similar view. In verses 7, he argues that marriage is a gift and to some, not others. He says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion." So you can see Paul, in this case, he actually provides an argument for singleness as it gives you more time to devote to ministry, right? So this idea that Jesus had to have been married as a Jewish man and as a Jewish rabbi, it doesn't necessarily fit. That's a cultural appropriation, and it doesn't really lie in with the scriptures. Judaism, we have very, very well-known sect of Jews called the Essenes. Anyone know who they were? They were the scribes at Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? Um, they were discovered, oh, not 1941, I think is when it started. And it was a significant size group of Judaism actually advocated, advocated celibacy, 
right? The Essenes did. So they had no preconceived ideas that you had to be married in order to be a good Jewish male. So to say that it was un-Jewish to be married or that Jews had to be married, well, that leaves out the Essenes, a very, very significant sect of the Jews. Some rabbis would even postpone marriage or even choose to not be married to focus on the law. For example, Simeon Bassani never married even though he taught that Jewish men should be married. There's also this other idea that somehow in early Christianity, Jesus' divinity came rather late. Anyone hear that one yet? That the uh, godhood of Christ was made up later? That it wasn't always a, an original idea of the church? No, I'm getting some, some puzzled looks. Okay. It's out there. It's this idea. First, let me backtrack a bit. Does everyone know what the Council of Nicaea was? Not everybody? Okay, so I'll, I'll rehash it a bit. The Council of Nicaea was in AD 325. And what did they decide on the Council of Nicaea? Two really, really important things. Well, they decided on the divinity, the Godhead of Christ, and they decided on the absolute canon of our scriptures. What is to be, quote, the Bible, and right, and what is to be left out. And we'll deal more of that later. So the idea floating around, it's been floating around for a while, is that Christ was not considered fully divine until the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 AD. That's absolutely not true, and we'll, we'll look in that. So was Jesus' divinity invented or not? Well, Philippians 2.6 says that Jesus was, in the very nature, God. Well, that's pretty doggone clear. Colossians 1, 15 through 16. He, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Pretty simple, pretty clear cut, showing that Christ is indeed God. 1 Corinthians 8.6 Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Hmm. This talks about the one Lord, Jesus, through whom all things come. Of course, Jesus is the Creator. And we run into this problem not only... You're going to hear different um, uh, versions of this argument. Not only that Jesus' divinity was created later uh, on the Council of Nicaea, but you'll also hear the argument for those that deny the Trinity that Jesus isn't God at all. So why would we need to study this? Can we think of anyone popular today that might deny that Jesus is God? Oh, some folks say that he's the brother of Michael the Archangel. Anyone know who that is? Yep. Some folks say that, that Jesus was merely a prophet of God. Anyone know who says that? Uh huh. And Muslims. They say that Christ was a prophet of God, not the Son of God. So there's about, in the New Testament, there's about 10 to 15 passages that explicitly talk about Jesus as God. So they use the Greek word theos, or some similar version of it, um, in relation and reference to Christ. So very, very strong evidence in the New Testament that it spoke that Christ is indeed God, and we didn't need the Council of Nicaea to decide this. So, okay, let's go back a step further. Well, some folks deny the authority of Scripture. Anyone run into that one? Well, yeah. 
they don't say that, oh, okay, so the, the Bible says that Christ is God. Yeah, so what? Well, you can take a look at early church fathers and in their writings, and we can say, see what even they wrote well before the Council of Nicaea, and if they believed well before the Council of Nicaea that Christ was God. Ignatius, writing in 105 AD, he said, quote, God was manifested in human form, talking about Jesus. Clement, in 150 AD, it is fitting that you think of Jesus Christ as God. Justin Martyr, 160 AD, the father of the universe has a son, and he even is God. Arrhenius, 180 AD, quote, he is God. Tertullian, 280, Christ, our God. Origen, 225 AD, I don't want you to be offended that the Savior is also God. So our early church fathers commonly referred to Christ as God. So this idea that some of you may hear, especially on college campuses, that Christ wasn't proclaimed God or fully divine until the Council of Nicaea can be refuted by Scripture. It can also be refuted by early church fathers' writings. So, I believe that Jesus' divinity was proposed from the absolute beginning of Christianity. It was completely taught from the beginning. It wasn't something that we came up with later. And the Council of Nicaea, there was an overwhelming confirmation that this is what the church believed. Okay, you know me, I, I, I like folks that you know, like to quote facts and kind of distort them, as what we're seeing in our, our society today. I've heard it said that, well, at the council, it was a close vote on the divinity of Jesus. Do you guys know what the close vote was? It was 316 to 2. I would not consider that a close vote to decide that Christ was fully God, which was decided on the, the Council of Nicaea. Yeah, they didn't need a forensic <laughs> No, like my bride just said, no, they didn't need a forensic audit on that one. That one's close enough. So, like I said earlier, why would we bother with was Jesus considered God before the Council of Nicaea? Do you think that you guys are going to come across some in your conversations who are going to doubt the divinity of Jesus? Oh yeah, absolutely, and it comes across commonly. Lots and lots and lots of folks, whether it be Mormons, whether it be Muslims, whether it be Jehovah Witnesses, or even just regular folks that have this difficulty believing that Christ is God. Because when we make the claim that Christ is God, what else are we making? We're making an absolute truth claim then that the only way to heaven, God's heaven, he's the one that owns it, it's his property, right? So he has to set the rules. Well, who set the clearest rules? Well, that'd be Christ. So to make that claim, we Christians are claiming what? Absolute truth. We are being narrow-minded that there is only one way in order to get to heaven. We are excluding all other religions as being truthful or being effective at gaining access to heaven. Well. Here's the question. Is that wrong? Absolutely not. Thank you. Absolutely not. No, it isn't wrong. Is making the claim of something that it is the only way to do it, is that exclusionary or is that somehow degrading someone else's beliefs? I don't believe it does. I really don't. And that's the problem that we run into in our society, that when we make these exclusive claims, especially with something as important as the eternal uh, purpose of your soul, 
that somehow if we're not saying, oh yeah, we're all just climbing up this same big mountain in order to get to the same place, that we are somehow defeating them as a person and calling them worthless. That's not it at all. Did Christ make those claims? Uh, He did in John. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That is beyond clear. Now, who was Christ talking to at that time, right? Right, he was talking to his disciples. Was he telling them that, you know, every other way or every other person is absolutely useless and they need to be stampled underfoot and it's just a horrible that even that they exist? No, not at all. He's just stating a fact, just like two plus two equals four or the earth is round. I mean, we, you know, these are just normal facts of Christianity. Do you think those that say Christ is the brother of Michael, the archangel, or that he was merely a holy prophet of God and doubt his divinity, do you think that any of these use false claims? Like they're going to quote maybe, oh, it was a close vote on the Council of Nicaea. 316 to 2. Yeah, not a close vote. So this idea of Jesus um, not being divine isn't only popular in the Da Vinci Code, but in our culture as well. Yeah. As soon as you degrade the the statement that Jesus is God, yeah. and you allow, you know, you say, is it exclusionary? In some respects, it is ex- mm-hmm. exclusionary, and it should be exclusionary, mm-hmm. because if you if you take that out of Scripture, you've nullified a big part of Scripture, and therefore you bring all of the rest of Scripture into question. Correct. Right. And, Correct. And then the third thing that goes with that, the the heresy of today that. All, lead, all roads lead to God, if that's not an exclusionary statement, then all of a sudden that opens up, well, maybe there's truth in all roads lead to God, which right. we know that's not the case because of what Jesus said. Absolutely. And so you're doing a disservice to those who now say, well, it's okay that I follow Buddha or Hindu or you know, whatever, because they all go to God anyway. Well, no, you just condemn them to death yeah. eternally by doing so if you don't hold that. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Go ahead. The Council of Nicaea. It was early church fathers, um, highly respected. You know, popes, things like that, uh, in the time. For the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. The Catholic Church grew out of that. Yeah. Later on. Yeah. Deny Christ. Well, not necessarily deny Christ, but they just add to it's Christ and right. Um, But yeah, the the idea that Christ. (laughs) is exclusionary isn't a bad thing, right? It's not a thing that says, you know, you are worthless as a person because your view happens to be wrong. That's not at all what we're talking about. And have you guys come across that in your conversation? When when you share with somebody the gospel of Christ, the actual gospel of Christ, that, no, I'm sorry, your view of however you're getting to heaven isn't correct, and, and here's the correct way, and they come at you with this idea that, you know, you basically just called them a dirty rotten and their mom wears army boots or whatever. I mean, it's just, it's all over the map. The responses you get are, they're weird. But it comes from our culture, right? And our culture, you have to realize is, um, the fancy word is relativistic. (laughs) And what, what relativism means is that whole true for you but not true for me idea. That absolute truth doesn't exist in of itself. It only exists in the eye of the beholder. 
and you ask my kids when you know we've had those conversations about absolute truth and someone that denies absolute truth and they're like well what would daddy say well you just punch him in the face <laughs> like what do you mean you just punch him in the face i'm like well they're what are they going to say you can't do that why not it's true for me you see the problem <laughs> you know not <laughs> I'm, I'm not i'm not actually advocating because this is being recorded i'm not actually advocating to go punch somebody in the face <laughs> but well it's always it always is an emotional argument. Grandma, that was a good person, and certainly she can't be in hell. She never did anything wrong. She's, right. She's in heaven waiting for me because she was a good person. So you have to bypass that emotional argument and get to know. Sorry, Grandma didn't believe in Jesus. Grandma's in hell. That was. You can't say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> There's better ways to say that. Well, that very argument is one that I used yes. before I was saved. My great grandmother. Let me go back a little bit, give you some, some history here. Um, her mother, uh, Grandma Millmeister, still had the tattoo on her forearm from escaping Auschwitz. She escaped through Poland through a rail car to the United States. She was quite young when, um, I was quite young, sorry, when she died, about seven, but I still remember that tattoo on her arm. Um, and I remember her not speaking a word of English. It was only Yiddish that she spoke. Yiddish is, is a mixture of, of German and, and Hebrew. So her daughter, my great-grandmother, I remember very, very well, Grandma Rosie, and lovely, lovely person, but she denied Christ. And I used that argument, but Grandma Rosie was such a good person, she never hurt anyone. I mean, she took us kids to the five and dime, right, on Saturdays to, to buy candy. Uh, young people, five and dime. Okay. <laughs> a five and dime is kind of like the old person's version of the dollar store, and you'd be able to fill up a paper lunch sack full of candy for about a dime. It was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> or Woolworths, yeah. So just a lovely, lovely lady. And I'm having this conversation with somebody because they are sharing. They're loving me enough to share Christ, and I'm having this conversation about my grandmother Rosie, and they say exactly that. I'm sorry, Sean, but without Christ, your grandmother perished for eternity, you're not, if you get saved, that's up to Christ and you, you're not going to see her again. That won't happen. How do you think I responded? I lost it. Punched him in the nose. <laughs> yeah, I didn't punch him in the nose, but no, I, I, I lost it. You know, I, it was a complete emotional response. You know, how is that fair? To, and it all gets into that. We'll be getting into that later on um, in this class. Okay, so... That's the, the Da Vinci Code, and you guys will hear various versions of that through your evangelistic efforts, I promise you, um, if folks don't quote exactly the, the Da Vinci Code uh, verbatim when they're arguing with you. So how about what's known as the Gnostic Gospels? Anyone ever hear of those? Okay. So what are the Gnostic Gospels, or what's with the Gospel of Judas? This one has been more recent. So what's the Gospel of Judas? Well, it was in a codex. A codex is an entire book full of stuff. Um, and it was found in Egypt about 30-ish years ago. 30, 35 years ago. I can't really remember the exact time. But fairly recent, and it's been in the news. Well, not news, but along the internet, you'll, you'll find some ideas of this uh, Gospel of Judas. So it was written in an ancient form of Egyptian called Coptic, and its date was around 300 A.D., Side note, i got to bring this up because it makes me chuckle. Um, does anybody know what onomatopoeia is? It, yeah, it, it, <laughs> it's, it's the word that sounds like it is. Like when you say boom, you know, it, that's, that's what it sounds like, it's what it is. 
So in Coptic, ancient Egyptian, they had a word for unwed pregnancy, and its word was, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought I'd just throw that one out there, because it always makes me chuckle. So sidebar, it has nothing in relation to what we're talking about, but it's just funny. So on a, um, in Coptic, like I said, it's an ancient, ancient form of Egyptian. Now, this codex that um, the Gospel of Judas was found in, it's 66 pages, and it has four documents inside of it, and the longest of which is the Gospel of Judas, one of these Gnostic Gospels. And it seems to have been written by a Gnostic sect called the Cainites. And we're going to talk about them further, along with Gnosticism. But not surprising that in this text, it talks about Judas as the best of the disciples. That is what the Canaanites held to. Canaanites, not Correct. Canaanites, not Canaanites. Yep. His act of betrayal was not an act of betrayal, but it was actually an obedience to Jesus' request in this Gospel of Judas. Right. And Margaret's response, oh dear. Right. Exactly. Anyone that knows the New Testament, or at least a, a brief cursory glance of the New Testament, knows that this doesn't fly with the New Testament even remotely. Since it was written most likely in the middle of the second century, so right around 150 AD, or maybe even a little later than that, the question is, what reliable message or teaching does it teach us about Jesus and or Judas? Quick answer, can you guess what it is? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> right, absolutely zero. Uh, it doesn't tell us anything about Jesus or Judas. It does, however, tell us a lot about second century Gnosticism. Shocker. In fact, the Nag Hammadi texts that were discovered in 1945 that contained a lot of the teachings of the Gnostics, they contained no traditional works of the New Testament. They were all Gnostic writings. Uh, it was not like as if in the picture scenario that you know, many try to show you that all these books that had more or less equal acceptance and then somehow they were arbitrarily included in the Council of Nicaea. Anyone use that argument? Because I used to when I was an atheist. How do you get your canon of scripture? They just all finally decided and voted yay or nay and who cares and we just got together and we called this the Bible? Like that doesn't make any sense. How do you guys consider that authoritative? That was my argument. It's a lame argument. We'll get into that. So the argument is that all these books, the Gnostic Gospels, the traditional New Testament writings, all this is just all on the same plate and the Council of Nicaea just willy-nilly chose which ones they liked or went along with their narrative to select the 27 New Testament books that we have now. And it's that the Gnostic writings were almost always unanimously rejected as inspired writings well before the Council of Nicaea. Everyone, almost everyone, except for the Gnostics themselves, knew that these were not inspired writings from God. So another question is, do the Gnostic Gospels change our picture of Jesus? No, they, they don't. So what are these Gnostic Gospels, and what is Gnosticism? We'll get into that. They're dated around 350 AD, and so Gnosticism, let me go back to that one. If you guys, anyone uh, spent any time recently in 1 John? John really deals with this heresy of Gnosticism in, in 1 John. And it's this idea, this, this particular heresy, that salvation involves a special secret knowledge or insight. It's only available through this special attestation of knowledge and insight that you have to obtain. It's a, it's a higher being or a higher state of consciousness in order to get saved. Let me, 
make sure you're clear on this. It, right. It has nothing to do with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in the Gnostic Gospels. Nothing. Christ dying for our sins means nothing to the Gnostics. It's you and your secret knowledge that you were able to attain that enables you to get saved. Scary, huh? Now you see why. Yeah. Yes. Part of mysticism? Yes, it is. The other thing that the Gnostics uh, had taught is somehow that creation or matter is evil and it's part of the explanation of evil. That anything physical itself is inherently evil just by the mere fact that it's physical. Do you guys get where they're going to go with this one? So, instead of denying the divinity of Christ, they deny the humanhood of Christ. Because him being an actual human would make him evil because he's physical. Anything physical in the Gnostic mindset is in itself evil. The idea that matter is moving away from the spiritual into evil. So, like I said, in this case, Jesus is absolutely divine in their view, but he has no humanity in their view. And that creates a very serious problem, doesn't it, for the actual gospel? What did they do when they looked in a mirror? I have no idea. I really have no idea. And a, and a lot of these things, these ideas that come across, and you look at them, and you're like, like how, how do you guys even, how? <laughs> you know, you think, how can you possibly read the New Testament or anything and come up with these ideas without just blatantly disregarding it? <laughs> I don't know what they were smoking back in the second century, but yeah, it had been powerful. <laughs> so, salvation comes from knowledge or a special insight, and it certainly doesn't involve Jesus dying on the cross or his raising bodily from the dead, which is very alien to Gnostic thought. So, should these Gnostic Gospels reshape our view of Jesus? Absolutely not. Right? The Jesus that they portray are a false Jesus. Okay, now I know we're getting into this idea, and you're like, when am I going to come across a second century heresy known as Gnosticism? You will. And you just mentioned it. It's renamed today as mysticism. New Age. Oh, can you share that real quick? I prefer not to. Okay. But they, they definitely um, said they've started catching into this, this whole Nagamati thing, and, and they have, uh, I don't know, man, it's a friend yeah, absolutely. And it is this idea, and, and you will get... Go ahead, babe. Well, I don't know if it's part of it, but uh, the word just went out of my head, where they think they can... Oh, astral projection. Yes. And that's part of it, right? Yeah, it, it's, it, it's all of that. And I've got a friend that's into Rossicarianism. I don't know how it's pronounced. Rossicarianism. No, not Oh, that one's new to me, Bonnie. I'll have to look that one up. She, she, um, you have to have somebody contact them, and they'll pray about whether or not you're worthy enough to be in this group, and then they'll send you books to read. Yeah, that's not cultish at all. Yeah. When she told me about it, she said it, and I'll, I'll give them your name. And I immediately went home and said, Lord, if this is of you, then I want it. But if it isn't, don't let them do anything. And a few months later, she asked me if I ever got any books. And I said, no, no, I never got anything from them. Oh, praise God you didn't. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, quick thing to, 
kind of speak to that. So anytime we ever have these, you know, thus saith the Lord, or I have extra revelation from God, um, it's a very, very scary thing, especially when it comes to speaking on God's behalf. One of my favorite, my wife tires of me hearing this, tires of me saying this, um, but I'm going to say it again. In Job, I think it's hilarious because if you guys remember, at the beginning of all Job's troubles, his buddies had the great idea. They just shut up, cooked him dinner, and sat with him and cried with him. That was all they did. And then later on, guys being guys, buddies being buddies, they say, well, Job, maybe this is happening because... And they start listing all this stuff. And then God gets involved, and then he speaks to Job's three buddies. And he says, you know what? You guys better have Job pray for you because I'm getting ready to kill you because you have not spoken to me what is right. You guys remember that? I mean, so any of this that, you know, hey, I'm going to speak on behalf of God, eh, I would be extremely careful about that. So this Gnostic idea, this, this mysticism and the Nag Hammadi and all this, yeah, it is gaining popularity. Why? And you're thinking, you know, and that's, that's the idea. Because grace is so simple, right? I mean, it really is that simple. You mean all I need to do is just say, please, God, save me and fix me? and mean it, and then that's it? That's it? Yes, that's it. But we as people want this idea that somehow we need to do something. We have this secret, secret knowledge. So it, if in case you're wondering, well, why would this be so popular all of a sudden? Well, there's a certain movie series that really triggered this. Um, anyone see The Matrix? Okay. So the Matrix is inherently Gnostic, so is its director and its writer in it. If you're wondering what are the similarities between the Matrix, okay, let's look at it. Morpheus, the Greek god of dreams, is the guy that controls the Nebuchadnezzar, the ship, right, on it. Morpheus is the guy that offers Neo Anderson. Neo Anderson means new son of Ander or son of man. That's his name, new son of man. A red pill or a blue pill based on different realities what he wants to accept. When was the new son of man able to defeat the evil CIA guys after he had died and risen again, right? After he was no longer physical but metaphysical. Yeah. So it completely Sorry guys. Sorry I ruined the matrix for you guys. But next time you watch it, you'll be like, that's a trip, right? <laughs> so pay more attention uh, in the stuff that comes out of Hollywood. So that's really what, what started this new rise in the Nag Hammadi and the mysticism and, and Gnosticism. That's why we're dealing with it today. So you can see that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, quote, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He keeps referencing the gospel message as, quote, in accordance with the Scriptures. So when did this idea come? Immediately like within three to five years after Jesus' resurrection. Because why would Paul use that phrase? He's preaching the gospel and he says, in accordance with the scriptures. What scriptures, Paul? Right? It had to have been immediately um, at this point. 
So you can see that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was quite an early belief, not one that came later in church history. So, did the Gnostic Gospels change our view of Jesus? No, not at all. Not even close. There are second century forgeries that try to distort the Gospel to fit their idea and their worship of knowledge. And that's what it boils down to, right? Is our own worship of knowledge and how smart we can be and how much, oh, I remember reading something about this. Remember in Isaiah, I, the great I will statements, I will be like the most high, right? Who said that? Satan. Yeah, Satan. And this idea that nothing's changed, we're still trying to do the same stuff, trying to reach God apart from God and just complete insanity. And, but, you know, part of me wants to say, I don't understand why we do it, but then I do understand why we do it, because I understand our own nature and we're just, that's just the way we are. You know, welcome to, you know, a sin nature. Does this stuff make sense, I hope? Okay, because I was thinking when I was preparing this one, uh, I was like, oh boy, <laughs> you know, Gnosticism and the Da Vinci Code, you know, who comes across that in their everyday life except for somebody that, you know, picks spiritual fights? It's all on our Facebook, though. Is it? If, yeah, if you try to talk to these kids about spiritual things, uh -huh. they don't understand what you're saying. There's no... Because I think because God has been taken out of school, everything, yeah. They don't have any basis for what you're talking about, right? At all. They, 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 my my niece, God bless her, is. I can't talk to her about it because there's no. She can't find a foundation to stand on for the truth, for the real truth, right? She's, she's floundering in the, but is that true? But I've been told this, and I've been told this, and I've been told this. Well, if, if she likes to read and she likes to research, um, one of my former professors it's from Stand to Reason, Greg Kokel, the founder of Stand to Reason, he wrote a great book. It's called Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. And it deals with all of that, this whole idea that there's no foundational truth because like you're experiencing, Bonnie, when you try to have those conversations with somebody that has a no foundation of any absolute truth, I mean, I might as well just try and witness to this door or try and lead your dog to Christ. I mean, she might understand better, right? I have actually talked to this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... The thing is, unless God regenerates their heart, the truth will not be open to them. You can right. read the Bible every year and not be saved just as a historical reference, but until your heart is regenerated and you come to the saving knowledge of Christ, then the scales are taken away yep. and the word of God comes alive. We just talked to an ex-Catholic who married an ex-Amish. Yeah, it was awesome. It, it was, was so fun. Fun dinner conversation. In <laughs> we met him and we're like, let's have dinner. And their coming to Christ is the coolest story you could ever hear because the Holy Spirit wooed each of them. And then the Bible, the ex-Catholic, he's like, I used to read it, and then it was it was weird, because it was just words. It was words. It was old words. And he said, and then I sobbed for three hours and read the Bible, and, the, you know, the words jumped out at me. That is the coolest thing. So we can talk to these people with no foundation, right. but until the Holy Spirit reveals it to them, 
it's in vain. Yep, that's a good point. And it starts with prayer. It starts with a ton of prayer and petitioning the creative universe for these people in order to open up their eyes. Because, yeah, how many times have you guys had those conversations? At least I did. And, and I had those conversations where someone would ask an objection. If I wasn't able to answer it, I mean, I had PhDs behind me at college that was able to just, you know, mow this thing down like a machine gun. And yet they still want to believe. And you're like, what is wrong with you? Like, how is this possible? How, how are you not believing when every objection logically known to man has just been crushed and you have nothing left to do but to surrender your life to Christ? And then they still don't. And you're wondering, my gosh, what is wrong with that? And it is. It's the power of the second person of the Trinity, the Spirit. And he is awesome when he shows up in person. And that's what happened to this, to this one guy that we had dinner with in, in Montana. Of course, he, he goes to the youth group because there's a hot chick there, right? How many of you are guilty of that one? So, you know, he wants to hang out with the cute girl, and she invites him to worship night, and it's just she and her, it was worship, quote-unquote, but it was just like she singing and her brother playing guitar because, like, no one else showed up. And then here he is in the corner, and he's telling us, he's like, I just bawled for, like, three hours. Like, I couldn't stop crying. I don't know what was happening to me. And I just sat there and cried. And she's like, oh, my gosh, what's wrong with this guy? You know, he's just sitting here bawling for three hours when she invited him to worship night. But that's the Spirit, right? That's the power of the Holy Spirit, where all this comes from. So, again, why do we learn all this? It's just so we can have the, the umsta, you know, as my Yiddish family used to, used to say. That just means guts to go out and to talk, to even just start these conversations. Will they lead into someone saying, Lord, save me now? I don't know. That's between God and them, right? But at least it gives us the guts to be able to go out and we can have these conversations so that when somebody comes at you with, oh, well, according to the Nag Hammadi text, you know, that matter is evil, and you're like, wait, what? You know, you're not completely taken off guard, so I want to expose you guys to some of the stuff that you will come across. And I guess now, I didn't realize that, Bonnie, especially on Facebook, yeah, it makes sense that, you know, you're going to come across crazy ideas at the speed of light. Uh, YouTube. Oh. And then the YouTube algorithm starts recommending these things. And if people are looking for a specific answer and type it into the search, it starts running down all these different algorithmic suggestions and leads you up a path. Have you ever wondered how evil is built into the algorithm? Huh. I know Ben has mentioned that. i got to try that one these days. But I'll probably... It's interesting. It's interesting. Everything train, you know, because of YouTube. So wow, it's crazy what it can do. I can, I can imagine. I mean, I don't doubt it, you know. But we'll, we'll get into that stuff later. Um, any other questions? Because I think, yeah, we're about out of time. Yeah. You had mentioned that earlier in your life you made the statement or had the argument that it was just a bunch of old guys at the council in the sea and uh-huh. together, and just kind of arbitrarily. Are you gonna? Uh, We did in, in the past, but I'll okay. do it again. Um, we had a class on just purely textual criticism, which is the idea of why is the New Testament reliable. Um, we did, uh, and but I'll do it again uh, sometime in the future because there's a lot of new faces here. And the idea that he's asking, especially those for listening at home, so how did they end up choosing you know, what was in the New Testament? Well, there's a lot of, of very stringent standards. You know, number one, it had to be written by an actual disciple 
or uh, an eyewitness to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that, that caveat right there includes over half the New Testament. That's 13 of Paul's letters, right? Um, because Paul wasn't a, a, one of the original disciples, but he was certainly an eyewitness to Christ, especially on the road to Damascus. So that's how Paul ended up getting in there. Um, it couldn't have contradicted with other known absolute authoritative pieces of scripture, like as in the Old Testament, whatnot. Um, it couldn't have contradicted with things that we know to be absolute historical facts, say about the personhood or the divinity of Christ. Um, or that Jesus was perfect. Or that Jesus was perfect. So we're talking about the Gnostic Gospels. There's four of them. Um, the other one is the Gospel of Thomas. And in the Gospel of Thomas, there's a story. This is Some of you heard this before, some haven't. There's this story that, that Jesus was playing. It was on the Sabbath. He was playing down by the river, and he was making these clay birds as a young boy down by the river. A rabbi comes walking by. Why is the rabbi walking on the Sabbath? I don't know. We'll get into that later. Anyways, a rabbi comes walking by, and Jesus doesn't want to get into trouble because he's doing, quote, work on the Sabbath. So he claps his hands. The clay birds become actual doves and fly away, and poof, Jesus doesn't get a, get a spanking for working on the Sabbath. Now, that story right there completely contradicts what we know about the personhood of Christ or about the um, point or purpose of his divinity, right, in the rest of the Gospels. That's why the Gospel of Thomas was thrown out. So, yeah, there's a lot of stringent things, and we'll do that again. We'll do that class again on textual criticism. Good question. Any others? Yeah. One thing I think we should remember, ever since Genesis 3, when Satan learned his fate, he has been trying to deceive the rest of us by any means necessary. Yeah. Using every tool in his toolbox. And one book, one God. Right. And don't forget, the very first thing that Satan said, what was his very first thing that he tried to do? Yea, hath God said? Did God really say that? Is that what it really is? It's just creating seeds of doubt, right? And that's the beginnings of it all. Good point. Any others? Yeah. Like I said, they completely just disregard, uh, blatantly disregard pieces of scripture and just, you're like, how do you, I don't understand how you end up doing that. You know, like Jehovah's Witnesses, how, how do you get across that Christ is actually God? I don't, I mean, you have to try. It's like mental gymnastics to try and get there. But unfortunately, Jehovah's Witnesses are far more trained in their laity than we are as Protestant Christians in our laity. Those people are extremely well-trained in their arguments in their scriptures, in case you've ever run across them. Very well-trained people. But we'll get into that too. Super fun. Actually, hopefully my son's home um, for Mormonism. That's his thing. He really digs Mormonism, so I'm probably going to turn it over to him and have him teach on Mormonism. So, yeah, he's, he's really into studying that. Alrighty, guys. Well, let's close with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, thank you again so much for your word, God, and I thank you so much for your gift of salvation. Just please let these conversations uh, that we have throughout the week um, be of you. Uh, let them be seasoned with grace. And God, uh, those that don't have the foundation of truth, we just pray for them now. We just ask that you would completely regenerate and open their hearts, that they would be able to receive your truth, and that you would save them. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.